Uh, you know, if you think about all the Christian books that have been written over the, uh, obviously over the centuries, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of Christian books and uh, a lot of authors. So how do you figure out which one is the best uh, Christian book that is out there? Could you turn me down just a little bit? Uh, just turn me down just a hair because uh, I like to yell and there's no room right now for me to yell. <laughs> anyway, the, how, do you, how do you figure out which one's the best Christian book that's even out there? Let alone from that, how do you figure out which is the best like chapter or paragraph or even sentence? And Peter Kreeft, the theologian Peter Kreeft has said that he without a doubt can pick the greatest sentence that was ever written in the history of Christendom. And he says it is this one by uh, Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say it. And he says this sentence is the best one in all of Christian literature ever. Because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless, restless till they find their rest in thee. Now, obviously, uh, that's part of a larger thing that he's going on here saying about why we should praise God. And then he says, because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. In other words, if God is there and if he created us, not just to be co-equals with him, but actually to be running on him. In other words, he is the source and that we are to look to him and to get filled up as we acknowledge him, as we thank him, and as we praise him. If that's how we're designed, then something when we're not in like that is restless and it's out of sync. That's the nicest way to say it. You could even say that there's something completely and fundamentally wrong. There's feeling like there's, there's, a, there's a glitch in the matrix or things are not exactly the way they should be. Or you could even go as far to say that there's enmity or there's, there's division or even, even war going on within you if this is true. And this is where we're going to go today. We, we are in the fourth week of a sixth week kind of a, a, a mini-series, so to speak, within uh, our book of Colossians, where we've been looking at who Jesus is. We're looking at this issue of who Jesus is, and, and uh, we've, we're going to move on from this very important passage right here this week, but I want to read it to you just be, to re refresh where we have been. It says, the Son, Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20, the, uh, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy." For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And like I said, we are in this study right now called Rooted in Christ, Study of Colossians, and we're looking at the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Today what we're going to look at is a passage which talks about how is that a benefit to us? What, is that, what does that mean for us. So if you don't mind, uh, if you don't mind standing in honor of God's word, we're going to read this together. We've been trying this the last few weeks and this worked out pretty good. And if you don't mind, uh, read it out loud with me and we'll just pause 
uh, whenever I want to. So whenever I need to grab a breath, just do the best you can. So Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, you can have a seat. We're gonna look today just at Jesus and we're gonna look at this one issue. He's talking about him. He is the reconciler of all. He's the, the one who is reconciling things. And I wanna tackle this uh, and it's kind of it's kind of just flows real simply into the, the three verses 21 22 23 I want to talk about who we were talk about who we are and then uh, our response to that or another way of thinking about that is you have who what was happening in the past what's going on in the present and then what does that mean for the future what, how should that influence us for the future okay this is a money passage and one of the things I know when you read it out loud, uh, you, you maybe don't catch it all. And, and I know because I, I don't catch it all either when I read it out loud. So I just want to, what I want you to do is just let these imagery, Paul uses so much imagery here and these, these words are loaded. I want to just let the word just land with you this morning. So let's take a look at this. Who were we? We were alienated enemies. Alienated enemies. Let's just just take those little thoughts there, one thing at a time. The first one is alienated. Uh, uh, another way you could translate this word would be estranged, separated. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a minute. We're going to see that this is a word that Paul likes to use. He uses it in the book of Ephesians, and I'm gonna actually going to show you that passage here in just a little bit. Alienated, though, means that you are outside looking in. Okay, you are an alien to something, all right? Now, if you remember, last week we looked at verse 20 here. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So there's this concept that all of creation, in addition to just humanity, is in need of this, this be, being reconciled or being taken out of alienation. Romans 8 really nails this. Romans 8 talks about what happened when Adam and Eve first bit of that fruit, what happened to all creation. And, and Paul lights it up here, and he says this. He says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. This is beautiful language. Liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's great language. I mean, they're groaning. And how do you groan if you're in pains of childbirth, right? I know how I groaned. It took a long time. 
Can you please hurry this up? That's the way I was groaning. It didn't go over real well. I'm just going to say advice to future dads out there. That might not be what you want to do. Can we? There's a ball game on here in about 20 minutes. Could you hurry this up? That didn't work real well. The pain of childbirth, uh, if, if you have uh, given birth, uh, I hear that that's a big deal. And, uh, and, and there, when you're on the floor, the, you know, I was on our first child, they had us on the birthing floor, and then they moved you to the, to the different floor. And let me tell you, the sounds on the birthing floor are way different than the sounds on the other floor. And some people were real expressive, and other people were real quiet, and, but there was some cultures, I think, where it's super expressive. I mean, they're just, how you doing? You know, just blah, right there. And, and Paul's, Paul's picking up on this. He says, that's what creation's like. It, it's just longing to be restored. It's longing because it feels alienated. Now, that's, that's true of us as well. It says that we are alienated. Not only are we alienated, it says that we were enemies of God. Enemies. I don't, I don't think we really land on that too much. We think that, yeah, God, God, is, God is for me and he likes me. And that is actually true. He loves you. But without Christ, you are an enemy of God. Now, that, that's, that's hard to grasp, but it's like, wait a minute, that's harsh language. That that's brings an imagery of warfare. That, that brings an imagery of people battling one another and, 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 go, and doing all kind of nasty things to try to win this battle. And it says that we were that. We were enemies of God. Now, that takes shape it says here, because of our evil behavior. So it says we were alienated, we were enemies of God, and this happened in, in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, I, I know that uh, it's overgeneralized, but Gen Xers and millennials and boomers and all that kind of thing, but, but I know that uh, almost every generational cause has made fun of the next one ever since the, you know, the, what they call the greatest generation. So certainly those that lived through the Depression made fun of the boomers. The boomers had a field day making fun of Gen X, and I am enjoying making fun of you millennials. So, but it, it's really true. It, it really is. There's something fun. I, I don't know if it's even labeling them as much as it is maybe youth or, or whatever there is. But there has been something that has happened as we've thought of this whole issue of sin. What is sin? Well, sin is when, you know, things don't go exactly the way I want. Or sin is uh, when somebody else does something against me. Or sin is when I don't quite reach my potential. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't a result of sin. They are. But is, is that really all that sin is? And, and if it, man, Paul seems to make a really big deal about this. My favorite definition of sin comes from Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Uh, I want to read this to you until we get to verse 25. I think 25 is the best definition of sin. But I, I think in order to get there, you got to see it in context. Paul actually, again, uses warfare language. He says, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth, suppress, that's an active thing, suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, not everything about God, but at least from just by looking at creation, you can see two things. His eternal power, that he's powerful, and that he's other. He's the divine nature. Have been clearly seen, so being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God like that, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 25. What is sin? Sin is not simply just the breaking of a commandment. Sin is not simply when I don't reach my potential. It, it, sin is actually in a frontal offense at a holy God where instead of, just like Augustine said here, we find our rest in you, we look to you and give you praise and honor. We don't do that. Instead, we turn our back to the mountain and we look this way and look at the shadow and we worship the shadow. It's any time that you don't give God glory and honor and thanks and acknowledgement and instead look to anything of creation to fill that. So it, it, it can be a bad thing, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or it, yeah, yeah, whatever, but, or it could be, uh, uh, actually, all three of those things, i got to be careful with the drug one, but the, you know, I mean, in, in the right context, oh boy, <clears throat> hashtag cut this from the tape, uh, but it can be things that are what we'd call negative, or it can be even things that are positive, jobs, grades relationships, children. Anytime I let anything fill me up, actually what I'm doing is saying, I'm bowing down to this thing. Oh, little baby, you fill me up, oh baby, oh great baby. And I do that and I let that baby fill me. And then when I do that, I'm telling God, you're not God. What you're actually doing is you're looking at a holy God who's, who's saying, I've created you to run on me and to make it so that you should praise me. And instead, you're slapping him in the face and saying, no way, I will not get it from you. Just like Adam and Eve, I'm going to get it on my own. That's what sin is. That's what sin is. And it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. It causes this hostility. It causes a break between you and God completely. So you're alienated and you're an enemy. Wow. David Garland says it this way. The word alienated implies isolation, loneliness, and a deep sense of not belonging. The phrase from God is not in the original Greek text, but it fits a Jewish perspective that all Gentiles, by definition, lived apart from the one true God. We'll see this clearly when we read from Ephesians in a few minutes. It clarifies the heart of the problem besetting all humans. Humans have worshipped false gods and have become enslaved to sin so that the ways of the true God seem alien. 
Being enemies in your minds does not limit the hostility only to the intellectual aspect of our lives. When we are out of relationship with God, it mars our entire life. Thoughts and behavior are intertwined. Chronic sinful behavior twists the mind so that it becomes even more at enmity with God. And the twisted mind hurdles us into even greater depravity. The depraved mind then commends evil behavior as good or, or natural. It produces and condones fear and suspicion of others and an urge to hurt and destroy them. Those who become enemies of God become sin's lackeys. And sin inflicts only ruin on them as their lives spiral out of control. Carol and I had the opportunity to go to Europe this last fall, and it was, it was amazing to stand on ground now, of course, you know, close to 70 years later, but, but where you could be where you'd be standing in a place, in our case, we were in Germany, and, and you'd stand there and you'd see all the rebuilt buildings. And in Munich, where we spent some time, it was they had made a decision to build it, making it look old. But where you're standing, there'd be pictures or there'd be, you know, monuments showing what it was like before. And it was just bombed out completely. I, I don't, I, I think Paul is using this language on purpose. He, he wants you to understand what your life would be like without Christ. And I think as, if you're already a follower of Jesus, it's a beautiful thing. But Paul wants you to remind, remind you of this. This is written to Christians right here. He says, once you were that. So it's good to every now and then just go back and take a whiff of what it was like to live during the war. That's what's happening. That's who we were. Now, for those who place their trust in Christ, who are you now? Once you were alienated. And you are enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And then Paul says these two sweet words, but now, right? The Apostle Paul loves doing that. This is huge to the Apostle Paul. In fact, I, 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 I want to write down, here's the sweetest buts in Paul's writings. And I'm just going to give you eight of them. I, once want, I want to do a, a sermon series sometime just called The Butts of the Bible. And... and and it just, there's, it just paints it one way, boom, but, and then something else. And I just want to give you eight of them in Paul, because they are money. Here we go. We're going to see it in just a little bit in Colossians chapter 1. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. Hidden, but it is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 3. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Oh, it looks awful. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Romans 6. When, we were slaves, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul was like the first infomercial guy, right? Oh, there's all this old, look at all these old uh, knives. They don't cut at all. This one, this one will sever your neck off. Easy. But now we have that. 
Bad example, but you get the idea. <clears throat> Romans 7. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Then we go over to Ephesians, probably my favorite one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How bad can it get? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans, our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2 later on. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember at that time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners, and here's this aliens concept again, to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who, were fun, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And lastly, 1 Timothy 1. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. In every one of these, there is an impossible situation. You can't get out of it. But God, but now, and God does something. It is 4th and 99. It is 4th and 99, and you have the Vikings offensive lineman of last year. It is hopeless. But God, and we'll get a new draft this year, winning the Super Bowl this year. Anyway, I don't know, that's a prophecy. Okay, so what has he done? We were alienated. We were enemies because of evil behavior. But now what has happened? He has reconciled you. Reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death I, I, I want to keep reading, but I can't. Okay. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. You who were once an enemy have not just been always oh, signed a truce agreement. Okay, but you stay over there, and I don't want to. No, not that. And it's not even that, that okay, we paid each other's debts, right? It's not even just a, there's actually a reconciliation that has taken place. You kidding me? We once were enemies, we now are reconciled. And this happens not because of something you did. He did it by Christ's physical death on the cross. Christ goes to the cross. God makes the move. You're the enemy. You're the one attacking him. He's the one who comes and dies for you. If that doesn't blow your mind, even on a daylight savings day, I don't know what will. You don't deserve this. Unicorn millennial, you don't deserve this. And neither do I, unicorn Gen Xer. 
or boomers out there either. You don't. He does it anyway. There should be from our Bible smoke coming out of this page or from your iPhone or however you're reading it. He has done this when you were an enemy. When's the last time you did something nice for a neighbor you don't even like? And this is a neighbor who's putting graffiti on your garage every week. And you say, I'm gonna make him a cake. This is Christ going to the cross for you. And even as he's dying on the cross, people are sinning right there, mocking him. And it's for those people, if they would bend his knee, bend their knee to him, he would die for it gladly. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. And what happens then? You get, it says, to present you holy in his sight. This phrase right here reeks of a courtroom scene. You're being presented, it's the judgment. You're being presented and you're in his sight. It doesn't mean that, oh, God can't see anything. It just means you've now come before me and how are you gonna be found? You're gonna be found holy. Holy? Holy. What was I? I was alienated enemies and I had evil behavior. Christ dies, takes my penalty, gives me his righteousness. We're unified together. Talked about that last week in baptism. We're unified together. That's what baptism symbolizes. And now I stand with him on this judgment day and I'm holy because I'm with him. That's awesome. And then he goes on to say, without blemish. Let David Garland talk about this. The imagery of being without blemish comes from the world of sacrifice. Animals offered in sacrifice to God had to be unblemished. George Card reminds us that when a man offered an animal in sacrifice, he's laid his hand on it in order to identify himself with his offerings and to express his aspirations to be himself holy and unblemished. Paul, however, believes that this aspiration has become a reality. Through the sacrifice of Christ, who knew no sin, we blameworthy sinners have become the righteousness of God. This leads to the law court imagery. When we are presented before the judgment seat of God, no accusation will be raised against us. In Christ, we will be irreproachable. And that leads to the last word here. You will be holy. You will be without blemish. Excuse me, you are, not will be. You are, and you are free from accusation. Now just think about that just for a minute. Free from accusation. It's not even an accusation against you because of what Christ did. It is that good. Oh, if only God knew about, yeah, he knows about it. He knows about all of it. And I got really bad news for you. God has probably only revealed to you about, I don't know, one one one-hundredth of your sin. Because if you got all 100, you'd just be laying there in the fetal position, sucking your thumb, thinking, I can't believe I'm that bad. And he just says, ah, I'll let you know. You know, at night, I say, Lord, just reveal to me anything today that, you know, that I've done where I've exchanged creation for creator. And by his mercy and grace, he shows me one or two. And I probably do that a thousand times a day. 
but he shows me one or two when I lay my head down at night. And he says, there, think of those two. Now, a lot of people say, what if you die with unrepented sin? You will. <laughs> you, you do. There's just, there's so much more that, that God could show you. You spend five minutes with me, I could show you. I would enjoy showing you your sin. That's a gift of mine. Um, <laughs> this says that you are free from accusation. That is the beauty of the gospel. Friends, believe the good news of the gospel. That is what he's done. We're alienated enemies, and because of our evil behavior, he, however, has made us holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. So what has happened? Maybe a little too young to... to oops, where are we going? There we go. Uh, back it up. Back it up. There we go. Um, if you remember this, this was on uh, January 12, 1946. They held World War II ended. And I have uh, been a student of World War II uh, for a variety of reasons, both the political aspect and the sociological aspect, and obviously the warfare, political aspect of it all. And I, in my lifetime, we, you know, I, we did have the Vietnam War, um, but we never really had a war that, quite honestly, if we lose, we're speaking another language. Uh, we're, we're just going to be taken over eventually. And here was a war where it was won, and you just see these pictures of there's just joy. That's, that, that, that is even a small drop in the bucket to the war that's between us and God. And he now has said, peace. You have peace with God. Now with that said, Paul goes on then. And he talks about this reconciliation, but he also says there's a response. And he uses a phrase. He uses the phrase, if. Okay? So um, I remember one of my first seminary classes when I was learning Greek, and we came up with the word if. And the word in Greek can be if or since. Same word, if or since. Just the context kind of makes it. But in a lot of ways, it has the same meaning, right? Since uh, or if. In some ways, one is, is, a, is a condition about a future thing. Usually, you'd use the word if then if it's a future. And you'd use since if it's the, the past. But my dad didn't used to do that. My dad used it as a future thing. So we'd be sitting for dinner. And he'd say the word cinches. You ever heard cinches? Cinches up, since you are up, uh, <laughs> go get me some milk. And I, I would say, but I'm, I'm not up. And he'd say, well, you will be when you go get me some milk, right? <clears throat> so if, my dad would use the word since as a future reality with a little bit of dad authority behind it. You know what I'm saying? Since you're going to go do, since you're going to be splitting firewood tomorrow, I wasn't planning on, no, like I said, since you're going to be splitting firewood, see what I'm saying? There's a little bit of an act there that says there's power behind it, right? That can be the case here. I've often taken it this, this way here, and, but, but either which is somewhat conditional, right? It's a future action, so it's obviously got some condition behind it if it's, if it's out. And here's the condition. He says, if you continue in your faith established and firm. So in other words, this, this, uh, this war that has been settled is not for everyone. It's for those who are in the faith. And it's not only just for those who are in the faith, it's for those who are continuing in the faith. That's at least what this passage seems to say, right? He states it positively here 
that you continue in your faith, established and firm. And then he says it negatively, and he says, and you do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, I'm going to come back to that uh, in just a little bit on what those, uh, those two things look like. Continue your faith, established and firm, uh, and then do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is a theological concept that people have called perseverance of the saints. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, right? Perseverance of the saints. In other words, when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, that God does something in their life, and then they live differently the rest of their lives. So what does life look like for those who are, are now followers of Jesus and they're going to continue? Paul has an expectation that there would be a difference. Uh, listen to hear what uh, Kent Hughes says about this. Paul is not expressing doubt as to whether they will continue on. That is not what the Greek construction means. The scholar Peter O'Brien paraphrases the idea, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will, that's more of that since phrase, uh, the positive application of Paul's words are this, the gospel does not work like magic. The mind, the heart, and the will must be involved. Our minds must feed on Christ and his word. Our hearts are to focus on him in love. Our wills are to take their practice and pattern from him. Present faith leads to present results. Present drinking is for, pre is for present thirst. We must fill our lives every day from him. Okay, so remember we talked about the past reality and the present reality, and now it's a future reality. What is that going to look like? How are we going to respond in this? Now, this, if you're sitting there, and I know you are, most of you, uh, you there's a big question that just came up in this, Right? At least there would be in my mind, and there is, you know, is in my mind, and in their mind is this, wait a minute now, are you saying that a future action could actually eliminate what a thought was a past reality, or at least a, a current reality now, but it would be, in other words, can a Christian actually lose their salvation? If a Christian doesn't keep walking, do they lose their salvation? Now, this is, this is, a, this is a great question. Because if you're going to have any assurance of that, and believe me, you need to have assurance. Because if you're not sure that you're not at peace with God, it's, that's bad. So how do you go through that when you hear passages like this that you need to continue? What does that look like? And believe me, this has been an issue in the church for a long time. This idea of perseverance of the saints, what does that actually look like? If you take it to the extreme, you've heard people say, once saved, always saved, right? Once saved, always saved. I will uh, fundamentally get there and I'll say, totally agree with that. But it can get down to so it's so ridiculous like this meme. Don't tell me I can lose my salvation. I said a little prayer as a child and now I'm eternally secure no matter what I do. Right? In other words, there's this little, there's this thing that happened religiously with me at some point in my life and then, it, but I just, I do whatever I want and I don't live like that's a reality at all. This was ha what happened during the Reformation. Got, got a bunch of Lutherans here, I imagine, today. A bunch of people come out of the Reformation. Big fan. Big fan of Luther. There. Don't chin up. And so, uh, I don't know how Luther became Swedish, but he was. So, um, but out of Lutheranism and out of what came, what called the Reformation, came out of it somewhat what would call, people would call easy believism. In other words, I, I just said some magic words, and I don't have any problem with saying a sinner's prayer to come to Christ. I did. 
I don't have any problem with that. I think it's fine. But, but someone saying something or, or performing some little religious thing then gets me okay for forever. And instead of saying, no, I'm placing my heart and trust in Christ, and that's who I am. Led the Catholic Church to pushing against it at something they, they called the Council of Trent. There was a place called Trent. They all met, and they said, this Reformation thing is getting out of hand. People are just thinking they can believe, and that's it. And so they, they perhaps swung the pendulum too far, and they said this in the, the, uh, the Canon 11 of the sixth session of the Council of Trent. They said this, Whoever shall say that men are justified by the mere imputation of Christ's righteousness or by the mere mission, uh, remission of sins exclusive of grace and charity, which is shed ab abroad in the hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherited them, or also that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. That's, that's uh, uh, they, they spoke, let him be accursed. That's what they're saying. Go to hell. They said it, not me. I just said it, but I'm recording them. Uh, that, that's what they're saying. They're saying, if you believe it's only through Christ and only by his imputation of sins, that's it. And it's not because of anything you do afterwards. That's part of the equation. Now, that's a big deal. John Calvin, who, if he was a hipster, would have looked like that. Um, <laughs> responded to this, and he says this. I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith, which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification. Only cause of making us right with God is believing. That's it. It is therefore faith alone which justifies and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. Calvin's, Calvin's been quoted on this, and this is, his, this is the way people have paraphrased it. Justification, in other words, Ending of the war, me being right with God, me having my sins being taken away, me being fit for heaven, me being saved, whatever you, however you want to phrase it, that is by faith alone. It is by trusting in Christ and placing your hope in him, saying, Jesus Christ, be my Savior. That's the sinner's prayer. Jesus Christ, be my Savior. I take you as Savior and Lord. But the faith that actually justifies is never alone. God grants something else there. Now, that begs the next question. If that's true, then, do Christians sin? Everybody look around this room. Yes, they sin, right? So that's like, okay, this is getting confusing now. R.C. Sproul. There is no question that professing believers can fall and fall radically. We think of men like Peter for example, who denied Christ. But the fact that he was restored shows that not every professing believer who falls has fallen past the point of no return. At this point, we should distinguish a serious and radical fall from a total and final fall. Reformed theologians have noted that the Bible is full of examples of true believers who fell into gross sin 
and even protracted long (laughs) periods of uh, impenitence. They weren't even uh, repentant about it. So Christians do fall, and they fall radically. What could be more serious than Peter's public denial of Jesus Christ? I mean, really. So the question here then is, is it's, it's a life of repentance. So this, where Paul says, if you continue, if you continue in this. So it's a life of repentance. Well, that begs another question. Does it come from me or is it from God? Where does this come from, this strength to do this? Let's take a look. I want to look in one Bible, uh, one book of the Bible, Philippians. And is, is pres- uh, uh, preservation our work or is it God's work? And listen to what he's, I, I want to get to verse 6, but it's in the middle of a sentence. So, in all my prayers, it's the Apostle Paul, and it's the very beginning of the letter he wrote to the people of Philippi, or Philippians. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, right? So who's the one doing the work there? Well, God, right? God is the one who does the work. He carries you on to completion. Go to chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, this is verses 12 and 13, the same book. As you have always obeyed, not only my present, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, wait a minute now. That's me, right? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I tricked you. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his, to, in order to fulfill his good purpose. So not to get too postmodern here, but who is it? It's yes. It is yes. There's an essence where Paul is legitimately saying, you need to continue. But it's also, at the same time, he would look back and say, oh God, you did all that work. And, and I, I laid on my cards here, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist, which means that I believe God is the one who does the work even to bring people to faith. If you're not a Calvinist, that's okay. You were predestined not to be. But the... Um, <laughs> Uh, the, uh, <laughs> but in other words, it's the same as it's coming to faith. Paul tells you all the time, come to faith, come to faith, come to faith. And when a person does come to faith, I tell them two things simultaneously. That's the best decision you ever made in your life, and praise God that he moved in your heart to do that. It's the same thing when you go through life. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, we're going to see in chapter 2 of Colossians, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. That's what he's talking about. Same thing. Yes, it is both those things. But with all that said, Paul is making a statement here, and he is making a statement. Remember what's going on in Colossians without going too deeply into it right now? There's a heresy that has come in. Uh, some form of Gnosticism, which means that there was a, a different way of looking at reality, and, and we won't go into all the details there, but there was, they were thinking about punting on what we call biblical Christianity and maybe moving towards this, and it had some elements of Judaism, or we're not sure exactly what, but they're thinking about it. And Paul's like saying, dude, no, don't do that. And so the question before the Colossians is the same question before us. Are you moving? Remember he said that. He, he said, uh, and, and do not move. Do not move from the, um, do not move, where are we at here? 
do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So are you moving? Now, since I've been married, uh, uh, which is uh, 28 years, I've only lived in two places. We rented a place for about a year and a half uh, down by Lake Nokomis. And around a year and a half, uh, realized we'd probably like to purchase a home. So we started, we started doing what most people do, right? What do you do when you're, you, you start house shopping, right? Do you start looking around for houses and all that kind of thing? And then you, uh, you, you come to a point where you say, oh, I'm shopping around for houses and I'm thinking about it. And I'm kind of, yeah, yeah. And then we found one. I found our, our house, uh, paid $84,000 for our house. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, um, and I still owe a lot of my, I refied it so many times. Anyway, the, um, so the, but purchased a house. And when you buy that house, or you make another, another rental agreement, what do you do? Then you pack up, hopefully some semblance of labeling, and you do that nice and neat. And if you're anything like me, then you throw it on the truck, something like this. Okay, you just, whoo, everything goes. And some of you are orderly and some of you are not. I don't want to use that metaphor exactly in your faith. Exactly in your faith. Paul says don't move. So what would it look like to move? Well, first you'd shop around. Yeah, I don't really like this. I don't really like this house. Seems like there's just a lot of really messed up people in this house. Believe me, there are messed up people here. and It's just a lot of restrictions. I don't know. I, just, I, I want to do some other stuff. And this whole thing about giving God glory all the time, I just kind of want to, I don't know, I just kind of want to have to worry about that. And I just kind of, sometimes I just feel guilty about my behavior. I don't like that. I want to go look for a different house. And you maybe either consciously or either unconsciously say, I'm going to look for another house. What's a better house? What's a better way of living? Some of you might be there right now. You might be just, might be a better house. And I'm not talking about leaving Hope Community. You do that to the glory of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about leaving Jesus. And I have many friends who have. And it didn't happen just, it happened slowly. And they started looking and complaining about the house, and then they started shopping around for other houses. And I'm just going to say it, because I know Hope has, last time we did a survey, about 70% singles. Most of my friends in college who are no longer walking with Jesus, it is because of a relationship. Someone just took their heart away, and they didn't uh, follow Christ, and so I thought, ah, you know, it's not a big deal. And, 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 and those of you, especially the women in the room and over at Hope, Hope East, uh, don't just get a Christian. Christians are a dime a dozen. Get someone who really loves God. But you start shopping around, you start looking for other things. And maybe some of you, and by God's grace, you're even here today. But you're already starting to pack your bags, starting to put things in boxes. You're ready to go. Perhaps it's an unresolved hurt. Maybe it's an expectation that God didn't meet in your life. I don't know. I want to encourage you with something. Don't move. Don't move. As we close today, as we close with some songs of praise to the one, what, what is our response? Let me tell you what. Let me go back to how I began the message. Because you have made us for yourself, 
Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I think of John chapter 6 when you started preaching some very difficult concepts to people. And a bunch of your followers left. They moved. And then you looked at the 12 and you said to them, aren't you going to leave too? And Peter replied, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, you, following you is not easy. But where else can we go? There's nowhere else. You're the one who has eternal life. You're the one who's the reconciler. You're the one who declares the end of this war. You're the one who makes us holy. You're the one who stops us being your enemy. So God, I pray for myself and everyone in this room and everyone over at Hope East and whoever happens to be watching this at some point in time in the future, oh God, right now, would we open up those boxes? Would we put things back on the shelves? Would we make a long-term mortgage and say, I am staying. I am not moving. Jesus, you are my only hope and I have nothing else. And though you're difficult, where else shall we turn? Do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.